Good morning. My name is Brad Hubbard. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege to be here with you, worshiping our Lord and Savior, and also sharing God's word with you. Would you please join your hearts with mine as we open with prayer? Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, place, and space of worship. We ask your blessings upon us as we worship you in spirit and in truth, and as we receive the blessings of life and salvation that you have in store for us through your word and also through the sacrament of Holy Communion. May your Holy Spirit be with us now as we receive your word of promise and as we apply that to our lives and really to the world in our context today. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. One of the most common questions people ask regarding the Christian faith is this. How can a good and loving God allow so much evil and suffering in the world? It's perhaps the number one question we get asked when challenged by others about this Christian faith that we hold. Another question is similar, and that is, how can a good and loving God allow so much evil and suffering to happen to me a good and loving person, at least a person who tries to be good and tries to be loving and follows the Lord. What's fascinating is that we rarely ask the converse of that question. We never say something like, how can a good and loving God allow good things to happen to me when sometimes I mess up and make mistakes and don't do the right thing? It's interesting, our personal perspective when it comes to evil and suffering in this life and what we think or feel we, we deserve in some form or fashion. A similar question is this, um, when, it, when it comes to this idea of prosperity and disaster. We often think uh, like Mark Twain does, when a man arrives at great prosperity, God did it. When he falls into disaster, he did it himself. And there is some truth to that statement. So often, we as Christians, as believers in Jesus, give credit to God for the good things that we experience in life. And we should, because it says in this word that every good and perfect gift is from above. So yes, we should thank God for the good things that we experience in life and the blessings that we receive. But when we read God's word, and we look especially to the prophet Isaiah, we come across passages like this. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. What's a good and loving Christian to do when encountering a text like that? This is the Lord speaking here. And he's saying he does bad stuff sometimes. How are we to receive this? How are we to believe it? And how do we move forward with our lives of faith if this is true? That will be the topic of today's message, prosperity and disaster. Whose fault is it anyway? Focusing on Isaiah 45, our Old Testament reading for this weekend. If you like, you can take a Bible out that's in front of you and turn to Isaiah 45 you can also fire up your smartphone, tablet, or device as long as you promise not to look at the highlights from last night's Michigan-Michigan State game. Talk about prosperity and disaster. 
And no changing your fantasy football lineup until I get home this afternoon before one o'clock. Isaiah 45, I want to share a few verses at the beginning of that chapter, and then we're going to jump around in Isaiah 45 during the message this morning. Uh, Isaiah 45, verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, that is Cyrus, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you, that is Cyrus, the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you Cyrus, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. We'll pause right there. Who is Cyrus anyway that the Lord is referencing here in Isaiah 45? Well, it's not this Cyrus, but it does bring to mind a, a Miley Cyrus song that I'd like to sing for you. No, just kidding. <laughs> not everything needs a pop culture reference and a song and dance. It's not always a party in the USA. Da -dun -dunch. This is the Cyrus we're talking about. And if you'll permit me, I'd like to share a little bit of, bit of history about Cyrus the Great. He was ruler of the Persian Empire for 30 years from 560 to 530 BC. He is well known, uh, attested to by Roman historians, Greek historians, and archeology span as well. But perhaps his greatest accomplishment was defeating the nearly invincible Babylonian Chaldean Empire. So vast was Cyrus' reign and rule that he had accomplished what no other human had done to that point. He had the greatest kingdom in human history to that point in time. It extended from the Persian Gulf in the south to the Caspian Sea on the north, from northern Africa in the west to India in the east. And this, of course, included the promised land the land of the Israelites that had now been divided into two kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom fell in 722 BC to the Assyrians and the Southern Kingdom would fall to the Babylonians in 586 BC. Then comes Cyrus, the great leading the Persian army and he would take Babylon. There was something unique about King Cyrus and his approach to leadership, however, Instead of ruling exclusively by sword and spear like many of his predecessors, Cyrus did not enslave or abuse his subjects. Instead, he permitted the conquered people groups to retain their own customs and religion and often kept local rulers in place to help govern the people of his empire. Because of this, his subjects tended not to revolt against him and the Persian empire would be in power for over 200 years. For our purposes, though, this morning, looking at Isaiah 45, it's important for us to understand that the Lord is placing Cyrus in leadership at this place in time and allowing him to have success for this reason, so that those Israelites who were taken captive in 586 BC by the Babylonians would be released from their captivity and be able to return to the southern kingdom of Judah, to Jerusalem, to be free 
and to continue to worship the Lord God, Yahweh, in spirit and in truth. That is what the Lord is doing in history. That is what Isaiah 45 is describing right now. And um, here is attestation of that from Isaiah 45, verses 12 and 13, a little further down the way. The Lord says through Isaiah the prophet, it is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. What's fascinating about this prophecy is that this comes 100 years before Cyrus was born. The book of Isaiah, written approximately in 700 BC, Cyrus the Great, born approximately 600 BC. Amazing. The Lord God, through his prophet Isaiah, predicting the birth of Cyrus, his rise in rule and his leadership, and that through Cyrus and this Persian empire, he would release his people. He would set them free. These are reasons to be absolutely fascinated by the word of God. And these are also reasons to continue to place our faith in the word of God and especially his promises to us. So why has God done this? Why raise up Cyrus? Well, scripture interprets scripture. And as we keep our heads down and our hearts focused on the word of God, God gives us those answers from verse five and six of Isaiah 45. The Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you though you have not acknowledged me so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So God is making a name for himself once again, a name among the peoples. He will raise Cyrus up. Cyrus will do what the Lord wants him to do and set the Israelites free, set those captives free. And because of that, people will know that the Lord God is the true God, the only God, and that he is the God of the Israelites. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his will will be done, and his kingdom will come, all according to God's plan and purpose for his people. Also, also, God is not only making a name for himself. He's causing his people back then and now to remember who he is and to remind the proud and powerful that it's not because of them that they have success. And also to remind the humble and the weak that there is hope for the future. There is a message in Isaiah 45 for everyone whether you're someone who thinks a little bit more of themselves or someone who thinks a little bit less of themselves, no matter who you are, your age and stage of life, your situation or circumstances, whether it's going well for you or not so good, God is calling you to consider who he is as a God who created the heavens and the earth, as a God who causes the rising and falling of nations, as a God who gifts leaders and takes power away from others 
as a God who orchestrates human history to accomplish his plan and purpose. And what is that ultimate plan and purpose? To save you and to save me from our sins. To send his son Jesus to save us from our sins. To send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to become like one of us yet without sin so that he could be our savior. To send Jesus to usher in a new kind of kingdom. Not a kingdom of conquest, but a kingdom of peace. Ultimately, for God's people to have peace with him. Because Jesus Christ will have eliminated that separation, that separation of sin that exists between us and our heavenly father. And he does that through his life perfectly lived, through his sacrificial death on the cross and through his miraculous resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. He demonstrates who he is as the true son of God and savior of the world. And he shows you that the promises of God can be trusted because as you well know, it's easy to believe in God when life is going good. But when life isn't going so well, it becomes more difficult. God, why is this happening in the world? God, why is this happening to me? God, why is this happening to the people of Ukraine? Why is this happening to Israel? God, why is this happening to me in my life? God, why is this happening in our community? Lord, why is this happening in my home? The why questions come because of our human nature, which wants to question God and who also wants to form and fashion things so that it gives us an advantage. And yet, we, though struggling with sin and selfishness, continue to see God at work in our life. And we receive his promises through Jesus, which remind us of who God is, his commitment to us, and his relentless pursuit of our lives. He will not give up on us. He will not give up on his people. Friends, that is the call of the Christian faith, to continue to place our hope and trust in the Lord, in the good times, in the bad times, when things are going well and when things are challenging. And that's why I'm thankful for texts like Isaiah 45, because it communicates to me that this has happened in the past. And even though it might be happening to me in the future or in the present, I can place my hope in the Lord for the future because this is not God's first rodeo. He's been there before. He's been faithful to his people and his promise to you is that he will see you through it. And why and how? because of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we close the message this morning, I'd like to share with you a poem, but it's a hymn, and it's one that I've committed part of it to memory, but not the whole thing. It reads like this. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be, that God's own son should come from heaven and die to save a child like me. And yet I know that this is true. He chose a poor and humble lot and wept and toiled and mourned and died for love of those who loved him not. I cannot tell how he could love a child so weak and full of sin. His love must be most wonderful if he could die my love to win. I sometimes think about the cross and close my eyes and try to see the cruel nail, the crown of thorns, and Jesus crucified for me. But even could I see him die, I would but see a little part of that great love, which like a fire is always burning in his heart. 
It is most wonderful to know his love for me so free and sure, but tis more wonderful to see my love for him so faint and poor. And yet I want to love thee, Lord. O light the flame within my heart, and I will love you more and more until I see you as you are. Friends, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is your Lord and Savior. He understands your life. He understands your context and what is happening to you. And he chooses to love you and forgive you and be there for you no matter what. May you continue to place your hope and trust in him until he returns and calls us home. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.